0: Beth Bennett, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. Coming up, we talk to Harvard evolutionary biologist Carol Hooven. In her new book on testosterone, she shows how the hormone influences the behavior of the sexes and how understanding the science behind this hormone can be empowering for all of us. First, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in
1: science. A study published today in the journal Chemosphere warns that pregnant women carry dangerous levels of common household chemicals in their bodies. These chemicals can raise the risk of cancer for the women, along with developmental risks for their unborn child. The hazardous chemicals include some commonly found in pesticides, cleaning agents, hair coloring, and the melamine used to make unbreakable plates, flooring, and counters. The study came from scientists at UC San Francisco and Johns Hopkins. The researchers gathered data by analyzing urine samples from roughly 200 pregnant women. And for any listeners wondering how much of these chemicals are in their bodies, or how they might reduce those levels, it was not clear from the news reports, at least not yet. In any event, these researchers found toxins of concern in the vast majority of pregnant women they screened. The toxins were especially high in women who had frequently been around tobacco smoke, and in women of color, The researchers urge that more needs to be done to regulate these widely used chemicals. For just how widespread, let's look at melamine. Melamine is common in wood panels, washing powder, and popular melamine plates that are easy for kids to use because the plates don't break. Some applications for melamine have been extreme. Adding melamine powder to food can make the food appear to have a higher protein content. Using melamine this way is illegal, but it has happened. Melamine toxicity hit the headlines worldwide five years ago when 300,000 babies in China drank it in a milk substitute that led 50,000 of the babies to be hospitalized. The general concern about melamine used to be that high levels could damage the kidneys. But in 2017, scientists connected with the Endocrine Disruption Exchange in Paonia and the Department of Integrative Physiology at CU Boulder published a study in Elsevier raising the warning that melamine may not only be damaging to kidneys, it might be a neurotoxin and an endocrine disruptor. This new study, published today in the journal Chemosphere, raises more concerns. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Both
0: sexes of humans exhibit altruistic behavior choices we make that help others. This behavior puzzled biologists before they realized that helping relatives can benefit an individual's genetic heritage. Altruistic behavior directed toward family is seen in many animals, but only humans act altruistically toward unrelated individuals, probably because of our long history as a group living social species. New research has shown that the decision to act altruistically takes place in a different part of the brain from that used to make physically demanding choices that help oneself. Understanding more precisely what goes on in the brain when these decisions are made could help clinicians develop approaches for treating psychopathic behaviors. It could also be useful for better understanding why people are willing to perform everyday helping behaviors like volunteering, recycling waste to slow global warming, or stopping to help strangers. The brain region called the anterior cingulate cortex gyrus, let's call that ACCG for short, is located toward the front of the brain. It's known to play a role in social behavior, but has not previously been linked to putting out the effort to help others. Interestingly, the researchers found that the ACCG is not activated when individuals make decisions that only benefit themselves. The researchers worked with 38 participants between the years of 18 and 35. All participants were each asked to take part in decision-making tasks and to complete a questionnaire to assess their empathy. The participants made decisions while undergoing a functional MRI scan. This identifies different areas of the brain which are activated while people made decisions to help themselves or someone else. For each decision, they were told whether they would be working for themselves or for another person. The researchers found that the ACCG was the only brain area that was activated when people made decisions to help someone else, but it didn't activate at all when they made decisions to reward themselves. Intriguingly, people high in empathy had the strongest activation in the ACCG. The next step for the research team will be to investigate what happens to helping behavior in people who have suffered lesions in that area of the brain, like through stroke or brain injury. They will also look at brain activity in people who have high levels of antisocial behavior. I would love for them to look at ACCG activity in animals, but that would be tricky. And if you've ever been in an MRI machine, you'll know why. Well, most people agree that sex differences in human behavior exist. They disagree about the reasons, but the science is clear. Testosterone is a potent force in human society, driving the bodies and behaviors of the sexes apart. As Carol Hoven shows in *T: the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us, it does so in concert with genes and culture to produce a vast variety of male and female behavior. And, crucially, The fact that many sex differences are grounded in biology provides no support for restrictive gender norms or patriarchal values. In understanding testosterone, we better understand ourselves and one another and how we might build a fairer, safer society. Welcome to the show, Carol. I'm speaking with Carol Hooven, a Harvard lecturer who recently published a book on testosterone. The subtitle is The Story of Testosterone the hormone that dominates and divides us. So Carol, this is a fascinating book. And I would like to start by talking a little bit about some of the feedback that you got from, and that other researchers in this field have gotten to the effect that it's not appropriate to talk about a hormone like testosterone that influences physiology because it also has such an important social effect, which, you know, we call gender. And I was intrigued by how how vehemently people respond to this kind of issue.
2: Yeah, you're diving right in there, Beth. First of all, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm really pleased to be able to be talking to you about this, also this particular issue. And I'm glad you're just kind of getting right into it at the beginning. Uh, So what's interesting is that other researchers who are in my field generally completely agree with what I have to say. The academic reviews of the book have been very positive and actually the pop- in the reviews in the popular press have been positive. What is less positive is response within academic in- institutions. Even there's been some problems within my own institution. So in addition to lecturing, I also co-direct the um, undergraduate program. So I have really close work and relationships with the undergrads. So it's a particularly kind of sensitive position. And I think people are concerned that my language around sex and gender, they want it to kind of reflect the trends. And that's not what I do. I'm I'm a scientist. So the language that I use is meant to be sensitive to people but also to accurately reflect the science so i use terms like male and female which i don't think should be any kind of a problem but recently people have wanted to argue that sex is on a spectrum in fact some scientists even some evolutionary biologists within my own department uh actually they were grad students when making this argument trying to argue that sex is on a spectrum rather than just having the two and i think that's because they're concerned about social justice and they think that this is a way of supporting people who are kind of gender diverse and have gender you know expressions that aren't binary but of course there's a difference between sex and gender and the traits that are associated with sex, of course, are on a spectrum, but sex itself is not. So that's the kind of thing that I'm not willing to compromise on. And just given um, the sort of divisiveness of the politics around sex and gender and the science of sex and gender right now, if you don't kind of toe the line that your particular institution endorses, or if you say something that offends anyone pretty much then it can be you know really difficult so yeah that's the situation now and I'm doing my best to stand up for science and for sensitivity and compassion and I think you can do both because I don't think science has to be one particular way to be you know support true social justice which I think means acknowledging reality and using evidence to support social justice and uh, people's mental and physical health, ultimately.
0: Right, and I'm so glad you said evidence-based because that's what science is. And as a scientist, of course, and, and this show is a science show, we all recognize the importance of collecting data and using that to answer our questions. So it was just a little surprising to me to find that there's still this divide between the social sciences because many of your critics in this Um, Part of what you wrote were from the social sciences, but maybe we should start with the science. Um, You know, testosterone is a very potent hormone, and maybe you could just start off by talking about what a hormone is and how it can have such profound effects on both behavior and physiology.
2: Sure. And I just have to qualify one thing. Um, The really, what's happening is that the divide between the social and biological sciences is becoming diminished over time, if anything, so that there isn't sort of a clear, I don't see that that clear dividing line anymore where science say is really evidence-based and scientific, you know, driven by scientific principles. And then the social sciences might be driven by um, other ways of understanding the world. So what is testosterone? Why is it so important? What are hormones in general? I think one easy way to kind of explain what a hormone is, is to think about insulin. So that's a hormone that is not particularly controversial. And what it does, it's really a metabolic hormone. As most people know, it regulates our blood sugar. So it works in the body to regulate how much glucose is available at any given time by acting on various cells and our muscles and our fat to open up portals to let uh, glucose, mostly from the food we eat, or that's released from storage into our cells so that we can use it to fuel our existence. Basically that hormone has this physiological function. This, it's a protein hormone produced by the pancreas. It's a molecule of you know amino acids, and it also acts in the brain. It coordinates this physiological function of regulating energy availability with behaviors that allow us to say get more energy if our available you know glucose stores are low, So if we're low on sugar, we might feel really, really motivated to go get something that has a lot of sugar. And that can be really annoying and unpleasant. And we can just say, oh, you know, I'm irritated. I, I'm irritable. I have a sugar low, right? And you kind of know what's going on because we're educated about it. But that's a hormone that has a very basic metabolic function, regulating energy, which we need to grow and you know, maintain our bodies, but it also gets into our brain and changes the way our neurons function and levels of different neurotransmitters in ways that motivate us to engage in adaptive behavior that has to do with regulating the amount of energy that's available, i.e. by Eating, going, you know, to find food and eating it, or maybe we just relax because we have enough uh, blood sugar. The sex hormones are the reproductive hormones, which are steroid hormones. They're not proteins which have to be kind of shuttled into the brain. There has to, you have to spend energy actually to get those sort of larger protein hormones into the brain to communicate about what's going on in the body. The reproductive hormones are derivatives of cholesterol, so testosterone and estrogen are steroids. And they are coordinating the reproductive physiology with reproductive behaviors. So it's not about surviving. It's about, do you have sperm ready to go? Um, are you a you know mature male or female? Are you a little kid? Are you a fetus? Are there females around? Are there males around? Is it uh, spring? Is it fall? All of this is information that's in our bodies and in the environment that our brains need to get to tell us animals and other animals how to behave in terms of finding mates or parenting or fighting other males, for instance, or sometimes females fighting other females, or, you know, those are all parts of our reproductive behavior and testosterone is a hormone uh, steroid hormone that's produced by the testes. Of course, estrogen is uh, mainly produced by the ovaries and the adrenal gland in females, and it acts on the body to develop our um, basic reproductive traits uh, or uh, body parts and functions like, you know, having a penis or a vagina or running the ovaries or testes to develop that whole system. And then it also kind of elaborates on those systems in puberty, especially during puberty, those hormones send signals to our brain saying, essentially, there are eggs available. There are sperm available. You need to have a... libido that's kind of jacked up and you need to feel a sense of motivation to go find a mate. So you're not looking for food, you're looking for mates. There are a bunch of other things that we humans and many other animals have to do to find mates. So when our when our sex hormones go up in puberty, that tends to motivate these other behaviors that coordinate the availability of our gametes, our sperm and our eggs with the kinds of behaviors we need to engage in to reproduce. And that means something different for males and females on average. So since females are gestating and lactating and using their body to grow and feed their offspring, they have to engage in a whole different set of behaviors uh, than males do. Of course, there's some overlap. We both need to find mates. We might both have to compete to find mates, but for males more than females, libido and competition tend to be important. And uh, the changes that occur in the male's body, especially during puberty, reflect those strategies. Uh, larger body size, you know, more upper body mass, deep voice, big beard, all of those things are evolutionary adaptations that are sort of enacted by testosterone that promote male reproductive strategies and coordinate them with the production of sperm and the male uh, reproductive function.
0: From an evolutionary perspective, that there would be this coordination because reproduction is so central to every living organism, and right, so- it's the raw stuff of uh, yeah. evolution and of uh, natural and sexual selection. That's Yeah, how we evolve. this is yeah. such a critical hormone. And you, you touch on all of those areas, sexual selection, natural selection, that unfortunately we don't have time to go into today. But um, I think we could segue into another male trait that correlates with testosterone levels, which is aggression and dominance behavior, getting a lot of attention these days, too, in the media.
2: So what testosterone helps to explain is the, basically the sex difference in the, uh, expression of aggression. So it doesn't so much mediate aggressive behavior within males. It's more like if you're over the male threshold of testosterone level, which is high in utero, it's high in males also shortly after birth. And then it's high again in puberty. So if it's high or male typical levels at all of those times, then there's something like, something like a higher propensity for aggression or kind of the, the threshold for the expression of aggression, of physical aggression is lower for most males than for most females. And in non-human animals, this is clearly due to sex differences in testosterone at these different stages. But in humans, if you increase testosterone in a man who already has a sort of healthy, normal level, it tends not to affect physical aggression. Part of that is that most men are not not physically aggressive. What needs not that 95% of men are committing murders. It's that overall, the violent crime is overwhelmingly committed by men. And that is something that needs to be explained. And there are certainly social factors at play because- In some parts of the world, there's very low levels of violent crime, uh, mostly which is mostly um, committed by men. But in other parts of the world, they are very high levels. And that tends to be um, because of cultural influences. So we know culture is really, really important. Yeah, females can also be super aggressive in humans and non-human animals, but it tends not to be related to testosterone levels. There's other... Uh, reasons females tend to be aggressive. And estrogen also tends to be important, especially non-human animals uh, in aggression.
0: Right. And you said a really remarkable thing in the book that I had never heard before, that when men are involved in these aggressive interactions, that their testosterone levels can go up within a matter of minutes or even less. And I thought that was quite remarkable.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's interesting from the point of view of... Uh, natural and sexual selection, just evolutionary processes, where evolution doesn't like to waste energy. So if males can keep their testosterone levels low, so testosterone is expensive in terms of calories. It you know builds muscle. It can lead males to be highly aggressive, which can be dangerous, and you know uh, reduce reproductive success or the ability to reproduce. So keeping testosterone levels as low as possible, given the trade-offs is advantageous. So what we see in some non-human animals and in humans to some extent, is that when males face a challenge, when men are facing a challenge, there's some evidence that their testosterone levels will rise and stay higher in the winter. And that could be a physical challenge or a non-physical challenge, even like a chess game. So this is really interesting. It parallels what we see in non-human animals. And I think this is an area where we need more research. But the flip side of that is that In males who become fathers, testosterone levels tend to decline if they're dads who are engaged with their mate and their kids, you know, physically engaged. And we see something like that in monogamous, socially monogamous, anyway, they do a lot of uh, cheating birds, (laughs) where once the chicks are born or the chicks hatch, the fathers, tend to have a pretty significant reduction in testosterone. And that seems to enable them to pay attention to their chicks and do all the work they need to care for them. We have a house wren nesting in the yard right now. And I watch the mom and dad just go back and forth all day long with spiders and worms. It's hard work being a parent. And for the males, if the testosterone is artificially raised during that time, they neglect their kids and they go, as you, you know read about in the book, they go, out looking for other mates and looking to compete with males to get them and their children tend to die. Having low testosterone can be adaptive and having high testosterone can be adaptive. And humans, because our females are fertile kind of, as far as the, man, the men know, all the time in their reproductive uh, period of their lifespan, their testosterone levels tend to stay pretty high. We're not seasonal breeders. And that's an interesting uh, difference.
0: Yes, yeah, it certainly is, and I can see how if people focus on this aspect of the science that testosterone correlates with like the tendency to wander in the birds or you know low testosterone with the parenting that people might come to the erroneous conclusion that testosterone is destiny, but as you said earlier, because of cultural differences and our human sensitivity to culture and social influence it's not at all the case that we are enslaved by our sex hormones.
2: I'm so glad you said that uh, and just pointed out the role of culture. And I just want everybody to remember, and this is difficult sometimes for women to hear, but there is a big sex difference in physical heroism, in the readiness of someone to risk their lives for even complete strangers. That tends to be men who do that overwhelmingly. And I think that is related to taking physical risks, which can play out in negative ways in terms of taking risks in male-to-male physical aggression. But we want men to do that when they're protecting us, for instance, protecting our country or protecting our home. Women do that too, and that's really incredible to see, Um, but men do it far more. They seem to be much more ready to do that. So there's kind of like trade-offs and a flip side to what we might think are some of the negative behaviors associated with testosterone. And I think that culture can really play an important role in supporting men to in expressing those i'm just going to say positive aspects of masculinity instead of focusing on something like what people call toxic masculinity i think we need to remember that there's a lot of really positive attribute attributes that can be characterized as masculine and i'm women also have you know those same kinds of
0: Attributes. This is a good spot to end on that positive note because unfortunately we're out of time and we didn't even get to talk about some of the really fascinating physiological aspects. Oh, because but, I
2: talked for too long. I'm sorry. Oh, no,
0: but you had so many great things to say. So I will link to the book on our website. And gosh, good luck with the book sales and with your career. Oh, thank you so much. That was Carol Hovind, author and Harvard biologist, talking about a few of the many interesting points raised in her book. *T: the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. Her book confronts some ugly truths about male behavior, but also seeks to reintroduce nuance into our discourse by enlarging our grasp of the biological processes shaped by testosterone. *T* is a culmination of her professional and personal odyssey as well as lucid synopses of decades of biological and psychological research into a key hormonal driver of human behavior. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm currently the executive producer and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by The Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to sites mentioned in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.